Welcome to Odeon Capital Conversations on all things money and markets with Dick Beauvais and Matt Van Alstyne. And here is your host, John Aiden Byrne. On this episode, we look at who owns the U.S. federal debt. Dick Beauvais is out with a new report which examines who will pay for America's record deficit spending as the U.S. debt surpasses $33 trillion. It comes as some of the foreign holders of U.S. treasuries have scaled back. The stock market is skyrocketing and we'll find out what is going on. Has America now finally entered a recession or is it on the tip? of a downturn. We look at that. Matt Finalstein reminds us that there are now multifaceted definitions of recession today. Dick Bovey will shed new light on the radical changes in the global financial system since Russia's invasion of Ukraine and the impact of the COVID-19 upheaval. How is Russian President Vladimir Putin and the war in Ukraine going? We'll examine the evidence. Negative equity on automobiles in America is at the highest level in over three years. We'll have more on that. We'll look at the latest trouble for Apple in China and at lots more. I'm with Dick Bovet, Chief Financial Strategist at Odeon Capital Group and Matt Van Alstein, Odeon Co-Founder and Managing Partner. And we'll be right back after this message. Current and future holdings are subject to risk and past performance is no guarantee of future results. This podcast should not be copied, distributed, published, or reproduced in whole or in part. Information presented herein is for discussion and illustrative purposes only and is not a recommendation or an offer or solicitation to buy or sell any securities. Securities identified do not represent all of the securities purchased, sold, or recommended to clients. The views and opinions expressed by the Odeon Capital Group speaker are their own as of the date of the recording. Any such views are subject to change at any time based upon market or other conditions and Odeon Capital Group disclaims any responsibility to update such views. These views should not be relied on as investment advice, and because investment decisions are based on numerous factors, may not be relied on as an indication of trading intent on behalf of any Odeon Capital Group product. Neither Odeon Capital Group nor the speakers can be held responsible for any direct or incidental loss incurred by applying any of the information offered. Dick and Matt, welcome for episode 100. So we've hit a milestone. We've hit also some other records. We have a great show coming up. We're going to be talking about the US debt, who's buying the US debt, the continued bifurcation of the global economy. Dick, you have some thoughts about that. Auto loans, auto loan delinquencies, and um, the uh, global and domestic stage. Thoughts on interest rates, Stocks led by the so-called Magnificent Seven of tech stocks have skyrocketed on the back of this anticipation that the Fed will cut interest rates in 2024. There's a rally underway. Stocks are already trading at very high valuations. Is it possible stocks are topping out? Where where do you see that going? Well, I, I do think uh, that uh, this is a short-term rally, not not a uh, a rally that's going to last through 2024. And I think uh, the reason for it is that uh, financial assets have all gone up in value. The Fed may or may not be s- signaling that they're going to cut interest rates, uh, but I think it's pretty evident that they're not going to increase interest rates. And whenever it does happen, you know, I'm now in the camp that believes that the next major move in interest rates is going to be down, not up. Uh, that and, and that has already taken place in the bond markets, where you've seen uh, the 10-year treasuries now yielding under 4%. Uh, that means that the value of all those financial instruments has gone up. Uh, and it's therefore logical that if the value 
of all these assets have increased, you know, in the financial sector, or let's say in the uh, in the debt sector, that they should increase in the equity sector also. So I think that it, it is logical to see this rally, you know, that we're seeing now uh, under the assumption that these bonds are now worth more money. They're simply worth more money. Uh, now, will that carry us through 2024? I don't think so. I think uh, there is there there is another situation that we're going to have to deal with, and that is where is this economy going to land? And I uh, I still can't give up the thought that we're either in a recession now or we're very close to a recession. So I don't think this is a long live rally. It's real, and I do think it has serious solid underpinnings. So you think we might be at the early stages of, of a recession here, Dick? We should get into that because uh, by definition, that's two consecutive quarters of declining GDP. Or- the economists don't want to use that anymore. Um, I mean, that that is that is the standard definition of a recession, two declines in real GDP quarter after quarter. Uh, but you, you will find that most people uh, you know, are trying to get away from that definition and come up with other, you know, definitions which uh, would would better explain what's going on in the economy at the current at the current time. But I, but I do think whatever it is, <laughs> whether it's two quarters or whether it's defined in some other fashion, that a huge segment of the United States economy is is in trouble. So that long-awaited recession may finally be happening, and of course, the Fed's summary of economic projections penciled in three rate cuts in 2024 but they're just forecasts that there could be three four five there might be no cuts potentially yeah exactly and i think uh, that the fed you know is is muddying the waters first you know after uh, jerome powell the chairman gave his comments which i think clearly indicated that the fed was finished with increasing interest rates and that the next issue would be when or if they would cut uh, and by how much. Then, you know, three other Fed governors came out and said, no, 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 the market's reading too much into this. You know, we're not looking at rate cuts of that nature. And then this guy Goolsby comes out and, and Mary Daly, you know, the, the Fed governor from uh, San Francisco comes out and says that, uh, well, maybe we are talking about a cut in interest rates. So, you know, the Fed is completely muddled in its uh, message, if you will, to investors. But investors don't care what they say because investors have made up their mind that basically uh, there's no reason to increase interest rates uh, any longer. Uh, interest inflation is, is down, and you know, as you know, we said back last July that inflation was finished. Uh, but the point is that uh, investors are saying, look, inflation is down. You know, there's no reason to uh, raise interest rates anymore. Interest rates are now going to come down, and they've taken this staggering amount of money which they have and they poured it into the markets cpi came in at what 3.1 percent year over year that's down from 3.2 in october so definitely headed in the right direction yeah yes you're absolutely right what's interesting about this and, and going back to the definition of recession is i think the last year we had two quarters that had consecutive decline and and the NBER did not declare a recession. And in March of 2020, when the world shut down um, due to COVID, you know, they they declared a one-month recession where you never even had consecutive quarters. And so I, I think there's it's a multifaceted definition. And the rule of thumb of two consecutive quarter declines is a good rule of thumb, but it's not always applied. Yeah, no, I, I think it's clear that economists feel constrained by that rule now and they're trying to figure out ways to get rid of it uh, and come up with a, a more 
comprehensive way of looking at uh, the economic situation. So yeah, yeah, I, I think you're 100% right. A year has made a big difference in these markets, Dick and Matt, globally, politically, economically. When we started these podcasts, Dick, you came up with this concept of the bifurcation of the global markets. And a lot of that was triggered by the COVID pandemic. And then, of course, we had Russia's invasion of Ukraine. And now we have have unrest in the Middle East. And so there's been a changing of the whole global dynamic. Where is that right now as we enter uh, into 2024 and the year comes to a conclusion? Putin seems to be holding his ground in the Ukraine. We have that tension in the Middle East and allies who are friends or friends who are enemies. All of that's changing now. You know, I think um, I hesitate to say this, but my view is Russia's winning, Uh, not so much in Ukraine, but they're winning in the uh, global, uh, if you will, financial system and the global, you know, political system. I think that uh, what China and Russia have now done is they've coalesced, you know, what was presumed to be out there, the BRICS, into something which is a usable, definable group of countries, which are now working together, you know, to build their economic dominance of the globe. You you know the obvious names. Obvious names, obviously, are, you know, uh, China and Russia and um, North Korea and Iran uh, the Union of so- uh, South Africa, uh, they are, they've stopped buying U.S. treasuries also, and they, they, they're part of it. China is building a deep water port for Peru. It's building a deep water port for Argentina. Uh, it's supporting Venezuela. Uh, it, it now, depending upon what public, uh, source you look at, I don't have hard statistics on this. So all I can do is, is parrot what other people are saying. Uh, but it, it does appear that there is a global financial system which is separate from the U.S. dollar, uh, and and they they have created that. I mean, you know, I, I've been arguing since they joined the World Trade System in 2002 that you know this is where they were going and that they would get there. I think that uh, they they are there. They they do have a, a financial system which operates among themselves that is not dependent upon the uses of the dollar. I mean, uh, I was going through um, yesterday the countries uh, who are buying or not buying U.S. treasuries, and you will find that there are, you know, Turkey is is dropped out as as one of the big buyers of the U.S. treasuries. The Union of South Africa, however they call that country, is is dropped out. Little countries like Bolivia have dropped out. You know, there are a whole bunch of countries that were living on the dollar uh, that, you know, now are, you know, operating within this other financial system. Uh, Again, it's hard to nail down the numbers because China won't make them available. But the people in in Germany who do this stuff say there's there's 150 countries that have borrowed $1.1 trillion from the Chinese. Now, clearly, they're moving toward, now they're borrowing dollars from the Chinese, but they're moving toward, you know, that system that the Chinese and the Russians have set up. You know, Putin is no longer concerned about being arrested if he leaves Russia uh, and he has gone to other countries. He's being supported by Hungary, 
you know, it's almost like he has a mole in NATO now, you know, with Hungary there. Uh, Moldova wants, uh, you know, to be part of Russia again. You know, the the classic uh, Southeastern Asian countries like Kazakhstan, Kyrgyzstan, you know, I, I can't pronounce Kyrgyzstan, but that's actually part of Russia already. That, you know, all these people are coalescing around that that new axis. And, you know, we're sitting here worrying about whether Hunter Biden should go to jail or whether uh, well, Trump should go to jail. Uh, you know, we, we have our heads somewhere else. The Hunter I, Biden thing is a whole separate thing. But maybe. No, no, I'm, not, I'm not talking about we're talking about that issue. Yeah. We're talking about the, the impeachment of Trump issue. You know, and, and they're not talking about those things in those countries. They're talking about, are we going to take all of the uh, cobalt out of the Democratic Republic of the Congo where they have a dominant position? Are we going to be the dominant manufacturer in Kenya? In other words, while we're talking about those two issues, one Republican, one Democrat, they're talking about things which increase their power, increase their you know position in the world economy, and we don't seem to even care about it. Uh, there's right, a ahead. lot you said there. <laughs> it's just a I lot. Know. First off, uh, I agree with you completely that Russia is winning the war in Ukraine. I think that's been evident since day one that they were going to win. Um, you know, unless unless America or the West has some sort of strategy to push them out, by definition, they're going to win. I mean, we we set the 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 boundaries of what winning looks like early by saying we want Crimea back, and I say we we the West, Ukraine, whatever. But we're not getting Crimea back. <laughs> we're not getting the Donbass back. I mean. It's ridiculous that even people continually act like this war is competitive. It's not competitive. The the average enlistee you know, when the war started on the Ukraine side was 23 years old. And they came out last week and said that the average recent enlistee is 43 years old. I mean, how do you jump 20 years of your of, of age of your army and consider yourself competitive? They're going to run out of men. And my big fear is what's the strategy when they do run out of men? But But going on, you know, talking about how Russia and China are winning everything else. I kind of think you betrayed your argument a little bit when you said that um, these countries that are borrowing from China are borrowing in U.S. dollars. What that tells me is China has a surplus of U.S. dollars because um, most trade that China does is in U.S. dollars, and they have to have a place to invest in. They don't want to invest in treasuries. I mean, that'd be that'd be diluting your your value of your money. So they they loaned it loan it to other countries that are still based in the dollar system, and and that seems fairly reasonable to me. But it also seems to me to show the resilience of the U.S. dollar. The other thing that you said about um, Russia and China reminded me of the quote from. Uh, Napoleon Bonaparte, where he said, never interfere with an enemy that's in the process of destroying themselves. Well, what is the West doing? I mean, what is our plan? Like we blow up the Nord Stream pipeline to kind of box in Germany. Great. Now they have extremely expensive energy. They're building coal plants um, because they shut down all their nuclear plants. Like we don't have any global strategic strategy on how to maintain American dominance. And we're doing it at a time when, you know, the, the reason you know, Janet Yellen said that they're they're going to talk about cutting interest rates. It seemed very implicit to me that it's because of the U.S. budget deficit and the the mm. the risk that ultimately yeah. we're going to have to be borrowing money to pay interest on the debt that we've already borrowed, and and that becomes a death spiral for any country. So I I and and with regards to Hunter and Trump and Joe Biden going to jail, geez, I mean I I, I could only wish that all of them would go to jail because we need serious people and we don't have them. We have clowns. Yeah, exactly, exactly. You said it better than I said it, but, you know, we are fiddling, you know, while Rome is burning, all right? 
words, you know, we have no comprehensive strategy as a group of nations. They have a comprehensive strategy. And again, I don't care what happens to Joe Biden or, or Hunter Biden. I don't care what happens to Donald Trump. I just wish they would go away. Uh, and, That's why I said I want them to go to jail. Yeah. Yeah. By, by, by the way, um, uh, President Putin, once a year, just before Christmas, does a, a long, long press conference. Right? He did one last week. Yeah, and I, I watched it. Four hours. And, and I mean, this guy, you could only dream that one of our politicians could sit and take questions. And he takes them from the public. Like, it, it seemed random. It did not seem like it was rigged or anything because there are soldiers calling in, you know, on the front lines in Ukraine. There is moms from, you know, random towns in Siberia, like all sorts of people calling in with all sorts of crazy questions. There's even a guy who put himself up as an AI Putin and he looked like Putin and he yeah. sounded like Putin. And Putin was like taken aback by it because it, it it was so demonstrably um looking like him. And and they asked him about, you know, what's the West, what what are you what are you fearful of of the West? And he kind of just like laughed it off. He's like, oh, we, we just have to wait. They're they're in the process of destroying themselves. And and I don't, you know, you don't need to have a war. You just have to have to wait. But but the thing he didn't say and the and the thing that scares me the most in at least in in the war in Ukraine is if I'm right that they're running out of men and they're running out of people. The question is how what does Russia do? Once they have the ability to to cross the the current borders and cross the current boundaries, I mean, is the West bold up enough to send our own soldiers in, or do we let Ukraine fall? I thought this was like the fight for the West, and so it really, really terrifies me. The U.S. currency thing that terrifies me. There's a lot of scary things, and then you look at the stock market; and it's, it's at all time highs. It's bizarre land. That that was a fascinating conference. It's choreographed for sure. Very slick media presentation by um, Putin and his his handlers. There were some uh, questions came from left field. What reality are you living in? He was asked by somebody. How many yachts do you have? I kind of felt that was probably staged just to make it look more authentic. Yeah, I remember. I mean, I, whether it's staged or not, you would never see an American leader take those questions. Mm. And and that that's what what you know like when when Dick says that they're winning globally you know you look you look around the world and you say okay where are the world leaders and you know when I was growing up I think I think it would be fair to say that you could say the world leaders were um, Ronald Reagan and and Mikhail Gorbachev they they had respect around the world mm. um, they were both pillars in their in their own countries um, you know they could move heaven and earth they they. You know they they were dominant, and you if you ask today who's who are the world leaders, I'm not sure anyone would say Joe Biden is. I think you might get Vladimir Putin mentioned, you might get Xi Jinping mentioned, um, but we don't have that respect, and I th- it's a tragedy. So whether respect it's rigged, being the word, we, whether it's rigged or not, you know if Putin were or sorry if Joe Biden were to have a rigged press conference where they asked him rigged questions like you know maybe about Hunter Biden or something embarrassing to him. He wouldn't be able to handle it the way that that Putin did with you know humor and intelligence and grace. And I, I'm not trying to respect this guy. I, no. I get that he's a thug. I get that he illegally invaded another country. Thank you. But he, but, but <laughs> the presentation does matter, and we don't have that, and we don't even have an agenda. And thing, and I'm not trying to be anti-American. I just wish that we had leaders that that could command a stage like that. I'm glad you use that phrase, thug. I totally agree. There's a something getting a lot of attention in the past 24 hours. There's a, a channel called Way Home on Telegram, and there's a group of mostly wives and moms of troops 
who are serving in the Russian army, they're posting on this uh, Telegram channel, uh, we Russians have no hope left under your leadership, referring to Putin, um, sit at the negotiating table. So these are kind of uh, dissidents, if you will. They may be a minority, but there is some pushback among the Russian population. Yeah, but the vast majority of Russian population su supports Putin fully. I think he's in the 85, 88% range, uh, which is something you would never see for an American politician. I mean, he has Russia behind him. They support him. They support what he does. They're not about to do anything to uh, upset his apple cart or the apple cart of where Russia is going. Russia has, I think, won the areas that Matt clearly defined, you know, in Ukraine, uh, but more important to me, Russia is winning in the world stage. You know, th there are countries by countries that are moving over toward the Russian domain away from, you know, NATO and, and the United States domain. Uh, the fact that, you know, South America is now, you know, got Chinese money everywhere um, and Russian troops actually sitting in two countries, Venezuela and Cuba. I mean, you know, we are not effectively combating any of this, uh, nor have we under Republicans or the Democrats for a couple of decades. And, and you know, since Bush at least went into Iraq, you know, the, the fact of the matter is we're giving ground. We're giving ground everywhere. And, you know, where we're going to see it is, you know, in 2024, when the United States government has to refund the existing debt and come up with what I think will be 2.2 trillion more in new deficits, which, you know, Who's going to pay for it? Where's the money going to come from? We'll see how we've contracted our ability to gather funds from around the world. The Fed's well, going to fund it. I mean, it, it, it's the only other option. I mean, right now, it seems, at least based on anecdotal data, that a lot of households, and I would include myself, you know, have been buying treasuries because getting a 5% coupon ain't bad. But if they have to cut rates to save the U.S. deficit, mm -hmm. then then there's not going to be natural buyers, and, then that, and it's not going to be other countries. It's, it's going to be you know, we've talked about it before, forcing the banks or the Fed. Yeah, I set up a, a conversation with a client that lasted for about 45 minutes on this very subject, which is that th this particular client was convinced, uh, by the way, as I am, that, you know, that these intermediate term rates on treasuries, et cetera, cannot stay where they are at the moment. They have to go up. And the reason is because you know, there are four sources of money to fund the U.S. deficits. There's, you know, the Social Security Fund and other government pension funds, all of whom put 100% of their money into U.S. treasuries. They used to fund 40% of the deficit. So to put it in, in simple terms, if we have, uh, I'm going to say rounding the number, we have a $2 trillion, I think it's going to be $2.2 trillion, but if we have a $2 trillion uh, deficit, in 2024, you would expect that the Social Security and other government funds would buy 800 billion of it. Well, the fact is, they're now only going to buy 400 billion of it, because that's all the money that they have. They only buy 20% of these deficits. So now you're in a situation where the, the non-US government entities are going to have to pick up more than their normal share. Well, who's going to do it? Well, the Federal Reserve in 2020 and 2021, they actually bought 52% of the new debt, but they don't want to buy debt anymore. They're selling it because they're trying to shrink their balance sheet as part of this quantitative tightening. Uh, 
So then you go to the foreigners. 15 years ago, the foreigners were buying 35% of the new debt. They're, they're down, you know, to below, I think they're 21%, something like that, at that level. So they, they don't want to buy it. So it comes down to the American public. And the American public has stepped up. They, they are now buying 41% of all of the incremental debt in the United States. And the, the reason why they're buying it is because of what you just said. 5% on a treasury is not, not a bad investment. But now the yield on a 10-year treasury is under 4%. So how, how, can, how can we, who's going to buy this stuff, number one? And in, if it's got to be the American public, which is what it's been for the last year and a half, the American public going to be willing to take a reduced return on the treasury when they're all going crazy buying common stocks or the magnificent seven, as they like to call them, because uh, the Fed is going to cut interest rates. You know, I, I think 2024 is going to be a, a year of recognition that the financial system globally has changed dramatically and it has not changed in our favor. In this conversation I was having earlier, the, the question was posed to me, well, will the banks ultimately be forced into a position where all they do is buy treasuries and pass along dividends to, you know, the, the investors in the banks? And the answer to that question at this moment is definitely yes. I mean, we're definitely going to force the banks to buy the deficit and we're going to use consumer deposits to get, get the money to the banks to buy the deficits and we're going to pay investors in the banks some, you know, reasonably above market return, you know, if, for the dividends that the banks will pay as a result of buying the deficits. This is, this is taking one huge chunk of financing of the private sector out of the private sector and putting it in, you know, in putting it into the government. It's another thing which is just not good. That picks up on what you mentioned last week, the Basel III endgame, because Matt asked you that, and it, it's not a conspiracy theory. You see the banks buying more U.S. treasuries because of the way the banking's going, and now there's this additional layer that somebody has to buy this debt, Dick. Well, that's right. Who else is going to buy it? You know, we, we, we uh, took a look. I mean, China at one point owned $1.1 trillion in uh, U.S. treasuries. They now own $850 billion. They got rid of, uh, you know, what is it, two, two, two and a half uh, billion, no, what am I talking about, billion, trillion, two and a half trillion dollars of, of debt, uh, U.S. debt, you know, in the last few years. The Japanese also owned over one trillion dollars in, in U.S. debt. They're down to something like 900, uh, you know, billion. So they've gotten rid of a hundred billion dollars. Not only are we having to fund the increased deficit of the United States government, but we've got to absorb the fact that these people uh, in China and in Hong Kong and in, in the other countries that I mentioned earlier, they're not willing to roll over the debt. Russia will not roll over any American debt. They are putting all their money into Chinese debt. They uh, actually made a public pronouncement of this, that every pension fund in Russia has to buy Chinese debt, not American debt. So you know, whether they do that or not, I don't know. But the, the, the fact is that they're in that direction. So we, we not only have to pay the deficit, we not only have to pay the higher interest on the existing debt, but we have to absorb the fact that other people who own the debt are not willing to roll it over. And who's going to come up with the money to do it? It's got to be the American public. What is the conveyance system in which the American public buys that debt? 
You make deposits in banks and banks go by the debt. And I think that's where we're going. And I think that's where the banking system is going. Ultimately, doesn't this debt have to be brought under control? That doesn't seem to ever be on anybody's radar. It's just astonishing. The national, the U.S. national debt grew by a monstrous, incredible, jaw-dropping 25.73 trillion since 1993. In three decades, it went up by 25.73 trillion. The largest jumps came under President Donald Trump and under Barack Obama during the Great Recession. I mean, how long more can it keep growing at these quantum rates? It's it's astonishing. Yeah, well, I think we're coming to the end. I mean, I've been saying that since 1972. <laughs> <laughs> but the point is, I do think <laughs> I do think we now have systems in place outside of the U.S. dollar, which means that we are coming to the end of the ability to do that. Now, I actually think you know whoever the president's going to be uh, in in you know after this election is going to come with a massive tax increase uh, because that's that that has got to happen. Uh, either that or you, they, they've got to have a, a significant contraction in, in the expenditures, which is what the Republicans in Congress are now fighting like hell for. But um, it, it can't continue. It just can't continue. The numbers are now just way too big. I'm sorry, like the Republicans are crazy because what are they going to cut? Like what's available to cut? We're at a point where almost 100% of the budget is, sorry, over 100% of the revenues are defense, mm. um, transfer payments, which is Social Security, Medicare, and interest. And 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 then you have like another 10% of the budget, which is like discretionary, but it pales in comparison to the mandatory spending. If you cut Social Security, um, you're kind of dead in the water as a politician. If you cut Medicare, you're kind of dead as a politician, as a matter, as, as a politician. If you raise taxes um, only on the rich, whatever they define that as, but they usually define, you know, sometimes it's the top 5% or top 1% or top 10%, but the math doesn't work. The only way, place you can raise taxes is on the middle class if you, to, to get enough um, juice to, to kind of reverse the trend of deficit. And if you raise taxes on the middle class, you're going to be dead in the water as a politician. I, it, it seems like it's an intractable problem with an intractable solution. And it will require someone with real skills to navigate it as a president. And the people running don't seem to have it. I mean, it's not me projecting. It's just looking backwards on evidence. Donald Trump cut taxes dramatically and increased spending dramatically. So he's not the guy that can come in. You know, he doesn't have a track record of fixing uh, uh, budget deficits. And same with Joe Biden. He didn't cut taxes, but he dramatically increased spending uh, almost above um, COVID emergency spending levels. And so he doesn't seem like he has a serious track record of, of doing anything. Um, you know, I, I would say optimistically, not for myself, because I don't like tax increases, but optimistically, the Bush tax cuts, most of them expire in 2025 without any, any intervention by Congress, they will expire. So that will help a little bit on increasing revenue, but it only re increases revenue a few hundred billion dollars over the next 10 years. And we're talking year on year, 1.5 to $2 trillion deficits year on year. So $500 billion is a drop in the bucket. Like we need a real reform and it, it, it's got to come from Congress, but Congress can't pass bills that have 80% support, like, like funding Israel or funding Ukraine or, um, you know, reforming the immigration and border policies. Like they've been working on this bill for six weeks and, you know, there's like 
what what you read is there's multiple intractable problems that won't get the, allow this deal to be cut, even though on on their own all these issues are relatively popular. So I I'm I'm really pessimistic, and not to mention half the country is going to think the election was rigged or yeah. stolen or cheated, regardless of how the outcome is. So. You know, I'm kind of praying for something else to happen because if it comes down to Trump v. Biden, November of 2024 could be a really dark time in our country. Well, I think 2025, um, because I, I, I had the opportunity to uh, speak privately with the, the first President Bush because a number of years ago he was speaking on an agenda and I was the speaker after him. Uh, so I was I got to sit down and talk with him. Uh, and, you know, I really respect that guy. I mean, he was a true American. I mean, he he fought in World War II. His plane was shot down. You know, he, uh, you know, was the head of the CIA. He was, you know, the president of the United States. And he promised that he would never increase taxes, right? You know, read my lips. But in, he, he had to re- increase taxes. He, and he did it. Uh, I think in 2025, I don't care who the president's going to be, doesn't matter who they are, they are going to increase taxes. And it's going to be across the spectrum. It's not going to be taxes on the rich only, uh, because that's the only, in my view, it's the only solution. And it's the one that is, is in fact, going to be put in place when everybody realizes that all the other solutions, i.e. cutting the size of the budget, you know, borrowing money from foreigners, all those other solutions aren't there. I think that uh, that's that's where, that's where it's going to come out. We're looking at the expiration of the Trump tax era, higher taxes in 2025. You have a note tucked in here, Dick, regarding who owns the federal debt and who will pay for the new deficit. Uh, it may require stabilizing long rates or making them go higher. So the rates on the long end could remain higher for longer. I think so. I think, you know, it's dropped way too, too much uh, to attract the Amer- if, if we If it's true that the Americans are going to have to fund the deficit because these other sources of money, these other pools of money are not going to be readily available, or if it's going to go through the Federal Reserve, or if it's going to go through the banking system, it comes back to the Americans. They got to do it. What's going to get them to do it? The, the investment has to be more attractive than, you know, the stock market, real estate, or business uh, startups, etc. And I think that uh, we're going to find that that's the case, which means that even though the short rate might come down, uh, the yield curve may get back to a normal structure. I think we're looking at long rates going back up. Well, the other thing you could do, um, I've said it before, is you could implement yield curve control, where you artificially hold down interest paid on on both the short and the long bonds. And by doing that, allow inflation to, you know, kind of catch, I mean, it's risky, but you try to let inflation run hotter than the interest rates. So over time, you can pay back your debt with cheaper money. Yeah, you're right. You would get uh, higher, uh, in, you would have higher income payments uh, from both individuals and corporations. And, you know, that that would be a historic way. That's the way Rome did it. And you have the benefit of wherever the tax brackets are frozen, as people make more money, they have to pay more of their income into the into the system. And, and that would also help reduce the deficit. Yeah, because it's not fully recognized that incomes are growing faster than inflation. Uh, and, and again, that's that's a Matt Van Alstyne, you know, uh, thing that I had to check because I didn't believe you. But <laughs> the point is, uh, it's true. It, it, it Incomes are growing faster than inflation. You know, they are moving into higher tax brackets. That does mean higher payments. Um, 
So, we, I mean, we'll, we'll, we'll work it through, but I think 2025 years, the 2025 will be the year in which these forces can, so to speak, crash against each other and we get, uh, you know, a new, uh, you know, new political leadership, new, new direction for the economy, new direction for the financial system, and we get, I'm assuming we get our act together. Well, Dick, I have to remind you, Rome didn't end very well. <laughs> but it took, it, took, it took a thousand years to kill it. So. What, I'm oh, sorry, when you, when, you, when you said that, I didn't realize that that was true about Rome. Were you, you're talking about the Roman Republic or the Empire? Yeah. No, no, no. The, 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 you know, what happened was uh, Diocletian and uh, Hadrian, uh, you know, recognized that it was crazy to make, it was silver was, was the primary currency. So they started making uh, silver and gold, and then they started making gold and copper, and then they started using copper. Uh, so, you know, they, they kept diluting the money supply by changing, you know, the nature of money. And that's, you know, Gibbons has well recorded, you know, this in, in his, uh, you know, massive study of Rome. But the point is, they inflated their way out of their, their problem for, for a period until they couldn't do it anymore. Mm. And then they collapsed. And, and the other positive here, too, is that according to your data, Dick, uh, America is producing 1,700 millionaires every day at the current pace. That could change. So one out of every 15 Americans is now a millionaire. So there's a lot of cash swirling around the system. Yeah, well, that's why the stock market is doing what it's doing right now. In other words, there is just an unbelievable, I mean, I mean, the, the uh, Federal Reserve puts out a, a, a of commentary once uh, a quarter, and, and it's usually two months, two and a half months after the end of the quarter. It shows what the net worth is of the American public, and and you know I believe it's somewhere around 165 billion, something like that, or, or it's more than that. Anyway, it's a big number, uh, and that number has more than doubled over the last ten years. So so the point is, the Americans. You know, maybe it's not all Americans. Maybe it's only the top 30%, 40%, 25%, I don't know. But the Americans are extremely wealthy people. And and the Americans, you know, are buying stock like crazy. Uh, and that's what's driving the stock market right here. That money is going to have to be diverted to supporting their government. Yeah, and we have all the stats. By some estimates, we have the strongest economy in the globe right now across a lot of metrics. Yeah, we do. I mean, let's face it, unemployment is not high. Unemployment is extraordinarily low. Americans are working. The value of their house has gone up. The value of their stocks have gone up. The value of the, I mean, as we said a little bit ago, their income is, is, is up faster than uh, inflation. You know, Americans are not suffering at the moment. But their government is, <laughs> and so there's going to have to be, there's going to have to be an equilibration between the two. The government has got to take some of that largesse to get its problem solved, and and if we do, if the government doesn't do that, then you know we're in you know we're in terrible trouble. I think it will do that. I I, I do not have a point of view which says that we're going to go down the drain or we're going to. Mm. My point of view is that. The stress is increasing. By 2025, the stress will be at such a level that we will solve our problem and we will come out of this thing and we will stay where we are as the best in the world. How, how do you square that optimistic perception with the idea that the U.S. is losing its largest and most valuable export? 
the U.S. dollar as the global reserve currency, which, by the way, I don't think I agree with you that they're, we're losing it. But but how do you if we lose the global reserve currency, the, the days of easy money are over. The days of being able to fund our government and dominate the world stage are over. I mean, we, we become Argentina rather quickly. Yeah, but go back to what it was before the United States was the global currency. There were, you know, there were a number of different currencies that were used globally interchangeably. Uh, now, the exchange rate between those currencies might change, you know, based upon whether, you know, France was doing well or Britain was doing well or we were doing well uh, or Japan was doing well. But the fact of the matter is, it's not it's not an aberrational to have us go back to that type of system. And that's what I think we're going back to. So there'll be, a, you know, there'll be a, an equilibration between the dollar and the yuan. But the fact of the matter is that both sides will still have their areas of dominance uh, and there's areas where they can pull, you know, uh, revenues from. I did say earlier we're celebrating our 100th anniversary. This is our 100th episode and Odeon Capital Conversations. Thanks to you, Dick and Matt, your brilliant insights commentary were one of the most popular and widely listened to podcasts on Wall Street. We're the top in the US on capital markets, we're number six worldwide on capital markets as ranked by Feedspot in their ranking of the 50 best capital markets podcasts you must listen to in 2023. We're ranked in the top 2.5% of podcasts worldwide by Listen Notes. And constantly daily on the charts on Apple Podcasts under the business news section. We even emerged on the Indian charts yesterday or this past week. So to our listeners in India, we say a big hello. Hello. <laughs> so people keep listening and let's hope we say anything. We keep saying things that they think are relevant, you know. Just a quick, interesting side note on Russia and the wily Vladimir Putin. Apparently, Western companies pulling out of Russia have reported losses of over 100 billion. Not surprising <laughs> since the start of the war, they've been sanctioning um, Russia or pulling out their operations, obviously. Uh, Putin has leveraged this to his advantage by imposing heavy taxes on their exit strategies. And he has pulled in apparently 1.25 billion. And another um, aspect of this, Heineken was looking around for a buyer in Russia and uh, they had a deal and a price set. And then the Russian authorities stepped in and dismantled the deal and transferred Heineken's Russian assets to a local producer. This guy is really clever, if all of this is true. Well, it is true, because if you know, you read the uh, biographies, they're, they're, and I forget the name of the lady, I think it's Catherine Belden, I think that's her name, but I, I could be wrong. She, she wrote this unbelievably uh, incisive uh biography of not just, uh, you know, Putin, but of uh, the system under which he operates. I, I want to come in here because the the Ukraine war, we're going back to Putin and Ukraine, I, I love that we keep coming back to this topic. Um, if we had a strategy to win, which we don't, it would not be just sending weapons so that we can fight the Russians. It would be drill, drill, drill. Let's get the price of oil so cheap that Russia runs out of money. Let's get the price of natural gas so cheap that Russia runs out of money. You would you would have launched um, a program all over Europe to build nuclear reactors everywhere and as fast as humanly possible to get them off 
needing you know the 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 oil and gas from Russia and 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 it would drain his economy. What we've done imposing sanctions and forcing them to rush into the arms of of their good friends in China and India is made them richer. Like you if you were to devise a strategy of like, hey, how do we help Russia win this war? You would basically do exactly what we have done. And if you wanted to win the war, you would make it so soul crushing on an economic front that by the way, the the economic boom that America and the West would have by actually spending our money not on weapons to kill people, but on nuclear reactors and drilling and pipelines and and making a robust energy system outside of Russia, lowering the price of energy for everyone in the world. That's what you would do if you had a strategy. And then we would have an economic boom because we'd become one of the most efficient, low-cost producers in anywhere. The West, the West Western Europe and America could do it together and, and we could restore the 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 greatness that we once had. And it's just crazy to me that we're, we're our strategy is to try to kill as many people as possible. And then when everyone's dead, then what? We don't have a strategy. And it's very disappointing to me because it seems the reason we don't do the right things is apparently environmentalism. You look at environmentalism, the, the lowest polluting energy source is nuclear. And instead of building nuclear plants, Germany shut them down and is now building coal plants. It's, it's backwards. It's a bizarre world in my mind. The environmental and green energy policies are crimping our economy and the and. It speaks to your concept of bifurcation of the global economy, Dick. You have a note out on auto loans and a lot of new stress in that sector. In the first quarter of 2023, more than 43 million people in the US were holding federal and private student loan debt of 1.77 trillion. Then in September, the total amount of auto loan debt surpassed student loan debt. At the end of last quarter, auto loan debt reached 1.58 trillion compared to 1.7 trillion in student loan debt. According to your research, the average car buyer is underwater by over 6 trillion, or is, it the, the, is that the average debt or Six thousand. Yeah, six, six trillion would be kind of. Kind Sorry, of did I say six trillion? Okay, well, trillion billion. Okay, <laughs> that's what it's going to be if inflation comes. Back. <laughs> anyway, the point is, um, you know, the value of uh, cars have come down faster than the uh, debt service payments on the loans. So uh, supposedly, uh, th these numbers come from Bloomberg. The average American is sitting with. Uh, a car which is worth $6,200 less than the loan that he has on that car. Uh, and, you know, the, the fear is that uh, he'll walk away. Uh, but, you know, if interest rates on automobiles were lower, he would do what was done, let's say, you know, in, in, in the Great great Recession, and that is he would sell a car uh, and, and, and buy another car, and the, the new car loan would encompass the loss on the old car, and it would be at an interest rate which is substantially lower. I hope you follow me on this. Substantially lower than the interest rate that he was paying previously. So he walks away with a lower monthly payment and a, and a huge, hugely increased amount of debt. But he can't do that this time around because interest rates are moved up. I mean, apparently the average interest, effective interest rate now Ooh. is around 11%. When you buy, uh, you know, a, a used car, so you know, essentially, you can't pull that trick that you paid before. So, if if there's any blip in unemployment, which we're not seeing, but if there was any blip in it, 
these loans are going to come crashing into the banks and the banks are going to have a big problem with them. And, and of course, Allied Bank shares and, and uh, Capital One are two banking companies which are public where the, the, the harm would be the greatest. And again, we do not have a relationship with either company and these are just pure recommendations on our part, statements on our part. I kind of dispute the correlation because I feel like everyone looks back at the 2008 great Sorry, I do agree that back then you could turn in your car loan, get a new car, add the balance of your existing car to the loan and lower your payments, like a magic trick. And you can't do that today. But I think the the idea that people are going to involuntarily um, stop paying their car payments, I mean, there's surveys out there that that kind of show like, hey, when you, when you have to make choices of what you're going to spend money on, you know, number one is your cell phone. Like no one's ever going to give up their cell phone. Um, number two, generally, is car payments. Like they don't want to give up their car, even if they mathematically know they're underwater. They also know if I keep making these payments, at some point, I'm going to own this car title, clear and free, and I can drive in the meantime. So I, I you know, no one wants to give up their car payments just because they're underwater, so that they can take the bus. I, I just don't, I don't share the view that we're going to have a, a dramatic write-offs at banks and and flood the world with, um, you know, cars that were were mailed in via jingle mail. Well, you're right. You're right about that. The, uh, I mean, if you live in Florida the way I do, you basically, you know, you you need to uh, have a car if, if you want to have a job because the public transportation system, it does exist, but it's so limited in size and scope that you must have a car to have a job. But what 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 I said was I prefaced it by saying if unemployment num- numbers start to rise, mm. you don't have a job, then yeah. then you know the, the situation changes. Fair enough. I, I I mean, but unemployment, I mean, my entire career, unemployment, the view was 5% is the floor. Like you can't yeah. go below 5%. Yeah. And now we've kind of gotten used to 3% to the point that if it got back to 5%, we'd, we'd consider it what used to be a heroic jobs economy would now be, you know, great recession talk again. Mm-hmm. So it's kind of crazy how the, how the world has, has moved on that on that measurement. Yes, it truly is. But the number of entrants into the labor market today compared to a generation ago is substantially less. So I presume that plays into why we're seeing this lower rate of unemployment today compared to 20 years ago. Yeah, but yes, no, I I, I think that's true. But I, if you don't mind, I'm going to slip a little bit into this Apple situation because that's that's getting really fascinating. Um, you know, Apple, you know, produces most of its telephones in China. Uh, and the uh, Chinese government just put a ruling out which said that uh, anyone who goes to work cannot bring an Apple phone to work with them. That's only for government employees, right? Yeah. Okay. yeah well, yeah, you know, but yeah, well, I thought it was for all employees, but you might be right. Uh, but the point is that, you know, what is kind of unique here is Apple goes crazy trying to uh, build things in China, and China is now telling its, we'll say, government employees, well, I do think it's broader that they can't, you know, bring their phones to work with them if they're Apple phones. So that I thought was kind of unique. In addition to which, that the United States is now trying to get on top of Apple uh, with certain of the products that they sell and not allow them to sell them to China. So you know, uh, and that was on the news this morning. But the point is, Apple uh, is is really up against the wall because uh, they basically have made the decision to produce these goods outside the United States. And now they're being faced with all sorts of sanctions 
by both China and the United States, if the United States does it. And it's really bizarre, which is why we've got to take manufacturing back here. Well, we've got to watch that. Apple's iPhone in October officially dethroned from its position as the smartphone market share leader in China. Huawei, it dethroned Apple's iPhone. It gained market share to the um, detriment of Apple. So Apple has trouble in China, Dick. Yeah, they have a lot of trouble there, and they got to get out of there. I don't want to read too much into this. I, I mean, one, you can read it as retaliation for America and most of the Western world's ban on Huawei phones, and China's been taking that very personally. Two, you could read it as China. I mean, we know China has a problem, and one of their biggest problems is they don't have enough domestic consumption. And one of the reasons they don't have enough domestic consumption is because they need their their consumers are savers, not spenders. So. In you know it's it's the old uh, I think it was Henry Ford that you know introduced the living wage so that his employees could afford to buy his products. It's almost the reverse of that. I mean, is is it possible that this is just normal trying to stimulate a company and stimulate um, domestic consumption of domestic manufacturing rather than like an attack on Apple per se? Well, I think I think it, it's exactly what you said. I think it is a you know domestic uh, consumption uh, incentive, but I mean the bottom line is. You're making the phones there, and basically the government is putting a, a major block in your selling the phones that you made there in that country. And it's not unusual for China to do that. Uh, just think bringing it out and letting people understand that this is happening is important because it comes back to the issue that we simply have got to increase manufacturing in the United States. Matt keeps mentioning that the, the Chinese consumers um, are not comparable to the U.S. consumers. 70% of the U.S. economy made of consumer consumption. But it, a lot of that, I presume, has to do with the fact that Chinese um, consumers don't have the social safety net that we have here in the U.S., like pensions, um, entitlements, and so on. So they're saving, building their nest egg for retirement. Yeah, no, that's true. But other, but the other point is that they don't, they're not making enough money to buy what we buy. Uh, but, but you're right. I mean, the reason why all these manufacturers are sitting in China is because they don't have, you know, the, the workplace, you know, rules to protect from injury. They don't have pension systems. They don't have required, you know, uh, you know, medical uh, systems, and that drives the price of producing goods there you know, way below where we are, which is why we've got to, you know, use artificial intelligence to get our production costs down to a level that we can compete with them. Let's not forget, though, that the biggest benefactor of China being the manufacturing engine of the world is probably the U.S. consumer, if not just the yeah. Western world at large, because if we were to, you know, like a family of whatever, four who makes the average wage, 60 or $70,000 a year, spends, you know, $4,000 buying their family iPhones. If they were manufactured in the United States, they'd have to spend $12,000 buying their iPhones. So, you know, we, we, we get this and, and the iPhone is the most incredible device that, you know, I think you could ever imagine. You go back and watch cartoons from the 1960s, like the Jetsons, and they yeah. imagined like robots and flying cars and, and all this stuff, but they never imagined having the world's knowledge at, at your fingertips and the ability to phone call anyone anywhere on the planet using a local number basically for free while you can be on the phone with them you can watch them on video while looking up you know history of of any 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 topic you want or scientific paper you want i mean it's it's just an incredible device and it's brought to us by china well it's manufactured there but the but the uh 
intellectual uh, development is in the United States. I mean, they- A hundred percent, but we wouldn't be able to afford it if we yeah, had a low-cost yeah. manufacturing. No, you're, you're right, but but it's our ideas. It's their manufacturing, but it's our ideas. Yeah, and I agree with you. AI and robotics and onshoring is, is the answer. And we got to look at AI a little more uh, on future episodes. Yeah, happy holidays, guys. Yeah, it's been a great episode. Um, we have 1,700 uh, millionaires being created every day in America. It's a good note to finish on. The market is skyrocketing. We'll be back next week with a, not our regular episode, but we will have an episode. But we'll be back for a regular one. That will be episode 102. And have a good holiday. Have a good Christmas, everybody, in the meantime. And stay well. Yeah, happy holidays to you both and to you all. Current and future holdings are subject to risk and past performance is no guarantee of future results. This podcast should not be copied, distributed, published, or reproduced in whole or in part. Information presented herein is for discussion and illustrative purposes only and is not a recommendation or an offer or solicitation to buy or sell any securities. Securities identified do not represent all of the securities purchased, sold, or recommended to clients. The views and opinions expressed by the Odeon Capital Group speaker are their own as of the date of the recording. Any such views are subject to change at any time based upon market or other conditions and Odeon Capital Group disclaims any responsibility to update such views. These views should not be relied on as investment advice, and because investment decisions are based on numerous factors, may not be relied on as an indication of trading intent on behalf of any Odeon Capital Group product. Neither Odeon Capital Group nor the speakers can be held responsible for any direct or incidental loss incurred by applying any of the information offered.